you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Charles Bukowski's writing, as we read and dissect his novel, Pulp. Before we proceed reading this novel together, because that is part of what we're doing here, I need to give you a few disclaimers. Number one, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. But this may not be the best episode to start with before you understand the dynamic of the podcast. So normally I talk for the first 10 minutes and then I'll get into the book. I don't feel like doing that today just because our government has not put me in the best of moods. So there's that. I may talk afterwards. Number two, if you're unfamiliar with the podcast and you're unfamiliar with me, I suggest you go back and you listen to my other episodes on Bukowski before proceeding. Number three, I have strayed away from doing series on novels just because the first episode will get a bunch of listens and then the second and the third and the fourth and so on they'll get fewer and fewer listens, which means that I'm not retaining listenership for the following episodes in the series. So why bother doing it? Well, part of the reason why I'm doing this is because Bukowski's probably my second favorite author. My favorite author is Brett Easton Ellis, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, but I've never read the novel Pulp. I've owned this book for a very long time, all things considered, But I've only read the first page and just put it down. And if you're not aware, this novel is generally not well regarded outside of his core fan base. There are people who absolutely love Bukowski but disavow this novel. Now the only bad thing, not even bad, but the only thing that I've read by Bukowski that was released in his lifetime that wasn't up to the standards of his other work was the novel Hollywood. And there are people who probably disagree with me on that, but I didn't think it was the strongest effort, especially after, I think, the novel that was released before Hollywood was Ham on Rye, which is often regarded as his best work. If you think that this is a podcast where you're going to get a lot of context and history about Bukowski and this novel, you may be disappointed because that's not what I'm doing here. What I'm doing is I'm reading this for the first time with you, the audience, and I'll stop and talk about it as we go along. This is not an audiobook podcast. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm kind of doing what I did in my one-off episodes with Cormac McCarthy's novels or Colleen Hoover, where I just read as much as I can before I stop. But out of respect for Bukowski, I think I want to read pretty far into the book And for episode 200, what I'm thinking about doing is revisiting my first novel, Demise of the Trinity, because I covered that very, very early on on the podcast. I was just getting my bearings, and I think I've found a better way to read and dissect my work on here, and I want to give my first novel its just due for that. If you would like to support the podcast, I don't have a Patreon, I don't sell merchandise, I don't take donations. What you can do is you can get on Amazon and you can buy my books. I have novels, I have a short story collection that is entitled Angry Bluebird, I have a novella collection called Staring at Nirvana, and I have many poetry books. But if you don't feel like shelling out the money for that and you want to support me in a more passive way, you can listen to my music wherever you stream music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. And I actually have a funny thing to say about that. I made a TikTok because I also have a TikTok channel under the name Lurking Vowel. And I showed how DistroKid, which is what I use to distribute my music because I'm an independent musician... I showed where one of my songs has over 4,000 listens, and it's not even one of my best songs. It barely qualifies as a song because it was a transitional track on an album called Strange Music. And if you want to know what that album sounds like, the title kind of gives it away. But I think the song is called First Try or something, and it's just a kind of a mellow bass thing that trans 
transitions into the next track. And for some reason, that has over 4,000 listens. You know, I have other songs that kind of make more sense. I have a song called Lou Reed, I think, Battles the Velvet Underground or something like that. And it's got almost a 1,000 listens, and a lot of that's from YouTube. And that's probably from people trying to find Lou Reed and Velvet Underground stuff. And it seems like people like it. I, I have another song called David Sylvian. I bet you can guess why people are listening to that. Apart from that, I don't know why people are specifically listening to this track because it would take a very specific set of parameters to find it in the first place. And it's only a minute and 37 seconds long. Being an indie musician and indie author has never been easy when you look at statistics. The creation part of the whole thing is where the fun is, it's where my soul is, and I hate that we as DIYers have to promote ourselves because most of us aren't even built for that. Most of us are not people who are socially adept enough to pull that off. We're not bubbly, joyful people who can say, hey, come read my book, or hey, come listen to my music, it's great. Because, for one thing, SoundCloud rappers have given indie musicians a bad name, and we don't want to listen to your mixtape, so why would we listen to one of your songs on Spotify, where you've spent years honing your musicianship and trying to create something unique, when it probably isn't worth our time? That's how most people kind of approach this. And this kind of ties into Bukowski because he was sort of an independent writer for a long time. He was a freelance author, getting his stuff published in journals and magazines. And he didn't really hit the big time until he was almost 50 years old with the publication of Post Office. Now, most of the stuff that I know about Bukowski outside of his writing comes from other documentary films that you can find on YouTube or from the artist formerly known as MJP, Hannah Phillips, who has a wonderful podcast called This Is Not a Test. And most of it is from her perspective before her transition. So just keep that in mind if you're going into this and expecting to hear Hannah Phillips. Well, it is Hannah Phillips, but it was just before she started transitioning. And she's absolutely brilliant. She is the founder of Bukowski.net and the Bukowski Forum, which provided uh, just a tremendous amount of resources, access to old manuscripts. And, you know, that that's one of the ways that we found out that John Martin of Black Sparrow Press was editing his uh, Bukowski's posthumous work with all of the new poetry books that have been coming out since the 90s. A lot of that can be attributed to Abel DeBrito as well. If you look at the forum post from him, you'll see a lot of the information that MJP, well, Hannah, sorry, brings up on her podcast. But that, that doesn't take away from the fact that Hannah is a wealth of information on Bukowski. Unfortunately, I think we lost Abel to the monster that is academia and that he stopped editing and doing research on Bukowski because academia is a real bitch. And I know because I was part of academia, however brief, and I tried to enter that monster and it spat me back out. And I'm just providing context before we go into this before you think I'm just some Joe Schmo who's going to be hating on this book, I don't know if I'm going to be hating on this book. I love Bukowski. I taught his poetry in my English 1101 course last year, and I wanted to do more academic-based writing on him, but since I'm kind of transitioning right now into a different career path that I started well before I was even in grad school... Uh, you know, I'm not sure where I'm going next, but I do know that I'm going to be reading Pulp on this podcast for a little while. My wife is taking a shower. Um, she's well aware that we can hear her, but uh, I think it's just that she doesn't give a shit. So, when you open up Pulp, you'll see that, and this is kind of bookending things here, 
Bukowski knew that he was dying when he wrote this, but his first novel, I believe, is dedicated to nobody, and now this is dedicated to bad writing, which, as you may know, a lot of people thought that Bukowski was a bad writer, and he was well aware of his critics. I was just talking to my friend Chris because he decided to teach a poem that I taught in my class, Girl in a Miniskirt Reading the Bible Outside of My Window, which is in response to, well, this is how I've interpreted it as a seasoned reader of Bukowski and someone who taught it to my class. This is largely in response to critics and the people who thought that Bukowski was a creep. So... He was well aware of his detractors during his lifetime, and I think he just didn't really give a shit. So we're going to start with chapter one, and we're going to see how far we get in this episode. I was sitting in my office. My lease had expired, and McKelvey was starting eviction proceedings. It was a hellish hot day, and the air conditioner was broken. A fly crawled across the top of my desk. I reached out with the open palm of my hand, and sent him out of the game. I wiped my hand on my right pants leg as the phone rang. Already, and I'm sorry to stop here, I know you're probably annoyed, but the reason why I'm stopping here is because I'm going to analyze what's going on here. I was sitting at my desk, my lease had expired, and McKelvey was starting eviction proceedings. It was a hellish hot day, and the air conditioner was broken. A fly crawled across the top of my desk. I reached out with the open palm of my hand and sent him out of the game. I wiped my hand on my right pants leg as the phone rang. This is not typical Bukowski writing here. He's giving details that he normally wouldn't give. He usually wouldn't even, I don't even think he would usually tell you which pants leg he would have wiped his hand on if he would have detailed that at all. I mean, saying he was sending a fly out of the game, that's a very old colloquialism or phrase and you know that's just something that you wouldn't find in his writing typically i picked it up ah yes i said do you read celine a female voice asked her voice sounded quite sexy i'd been lonely for some time decades celine i said i want celine she said I've got to have him. Such a sexy voice. It was getting to me, really. Celine, I said. Give me a little background. Talk to me, lady. Keep talking. Zip up, she said. I looked down. How did you know, I asked. Never mind. I want Celine. Celine is dead. He isn't. I want you to find him. I want him. I might find his bones. No, you fool, he's alive. Where? Hollywood. I hear he's been hanging out around Red Kaldowski's bookstore. Then why don't you find him? Because first I want to know if he's the real Celine. I have to be sure, quite sure. But why did you come to me? There are a hundred dicks in this town. John Barton recommended you. Oh, Barton, yeah. Well, listen, I'll have to have some kind of advance. And I'll have to see you personally. I'll be there in a few minutes, she said. She hung up. I zipped up and waited. Is this satire? Maybe. Or maybe it's a genuine take on a genre. Because... Bukowski, for the most part in his fiction, wrote some form of his life. It was often fictionalized or exaggerated. But so far, what I'm getting from just the first couple of pages is that he's making fun of a genre while also trying to give it some validity. He's mentioning Celine. He's inserting his kind of typical dirty man character into this. She walked in. Now, I mean it just wasn't fair. Her dress fit so tight it almost split the seams. Too many chocolate malts. 
and when she walked on heels so high they looked like little stilts. She walked like a drunken cripple, staggering around the room, a glorious dizziness of flesh. Sit down, lady, I said. She put it down and crossed her legs high, damn near knocked my eyes out. It's good to see you, lady, I said. Stop gawking, please. It's nothing that you haven't seen before. You're wrong there, lady. Now, may I have your name? Lady Death. Lady Death? You from the circus? The movies? No. Place of birth? It doesn't matter. Year of birth. Don't try to be funny. Just trying to get some background. I got lost somehow. Began staring up her legs. I was always a leg man. It was the first thing I saw when I was born. But then I was trying to get out. Ever since I've been working in the other direction with a pretty lousy luck. She snapped her fingers. Hey, come out of it. Huh? I looked up. The Celine case, remember? Yeah, sure. I unfolded a paper clip, pointed the end toward her. I'll need a check for services rendered. Of course, she smiled. What are your rates? Six dollars an hour. She got out her checkbook, scribbled away, ripped the check out and tossed it to me. It landed on the desk. I picked it up. Two hundred forty dollars. Actually, hadn't seen that much money since I hit an Exotica at Hollywood Park in 1988. So, we are to assume that this is taking place in the early 90s, which is when this book came out. But also, he's only working for $6 an hour? I mean, if he's a private detective, he must be pretty cheap, all things considered. I mean, I know minimum wage was quite a bit lower than that, but still, $6 an hour? And for the whole experience, $240? Now that would buy, barely buy you any groceries. Thank you, lady. Death, she said. Yes, I said. Now I'm filling me in, in a little on the so-called Celine. You said something about a bookstore? Well, he's been hanging around Red's bookstore, browsing, asking about Faulkner, Carson McCullers, Charles Manson. Hangs around the bookstore, huh? Yes, she said. You know Red. He likes to run people out of his bookstore. A person can spend a thousand bucks in there, then maybe linger a minute or two and Red will say, Why don't you get the hell out of here? Red's a good guy, he's just freaky. Anyway, he keeps tossing Celine out and Celine goes over to Musso's and hangs around the bar looking sad. A day or so later, he'll be back and it'll happen all over again. Celine is dead. Celine and Hemingway died a day apart 32 years ago. I know about Hemingway. I got Hemingway. You sure it was Hemingway? Oh, yeah. Then how come you can't be sure that Celine is the real Celine? I don't know. I've just had some kind of block with this thing. It's never happened before. Maybe I've been in the game too long. So I've come to you. Barton says you're good. And you think the real Celine is alive? You want him? Real bad, Buster. Belaine. Nick Belaine. All right, Belaine. I want to make sure. It's got to be the real Celine, not just some half-assed wannabe. There are so many of those. Don't we know it? Well, get on it. I want France's greatest writer. I've waited a long time. Then she got up and walked out of there. I never saw an ass like that in my life. Beyond concept. Beyond everything. Don't bother me now. I want to think about it. So here's what I'm getting out of this so far. This is the English major in me. Bukowski, as the narrator, Nick Delano or whatever, Nick Blaine, I've got that book in my hand, for God's sakes, Patrick. But where did I get Delano from? Jesus. 
He's talking to a woman named Lady Death. He's sexualized her as this, you know, kind of BBW hot lady. And he's mentioning these dead writers that are lurking around Hollywood. What I'm thinking is that this is Bukowski's way of reckoning with his own demise. No pun intended. And since he usually wrote about his own life, this is his, his escapism from the reality of what was facing him. It's also an interesting callback to interviews that you can see with him where interviewers ask him about specific writers and his opinions on them, and most of them he didn't really care for. But he kept getting comparisons, and a lot of people probably would have said, well, his prose wasn't up to their standard, or his subject matter wasn't up to their standard. I mean, you have to think, before Bukowski and someone like is it Hubert Selby, the guy who wrote um, Requiem for a Dream, before writers like that, authors were expected to not only have kind of convoluted quality prose, is how I would put it, but also they generally didn't write about the kind of people who were down on their luck, who were poor and drunk the way that Bukowski did, even though someone like Faulkner was a drunk. And if Bukowski was going to write something that was purely fiction, what would you expect out of him? I mean, he's not going to write about uh, a lovely English lady who is looking for a suitable man and has to play the coquette for a while, you know. It was the next day. I'd canceled my appointment to speak before the Palm Springs Chamber of Commerce. It was raining. The ceiling leaked. The rain dripped down through the ceiling and went spat, 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 spat. The sake kept me warm. But a warm what? A warm zero. Here I was, 55 years old, and I didn't have a pot to catch rain in. My father had warned me that I would end up diddling myself on some stranger's back porch in Arkansas. And I still had time to make it. The greyhounds ran every day, but buses constipated me. And there was always some old Union Jack with a rancid beard who'd snored. Maybe it would be better to work on the Celine case. Was Celine Celine, or was he somebody else? Sometimes I felt like I didn't even know who I was. All right, I'm Nikki Belaine, but check this. Somebody could yell out, Hey, Harry, Harry Martell, and I'd most likely answer, Yeah, what is it? I mean, I could be anybody. What does it matter? What's in a name? Life's strange, isn't it? They always chose me last on the baseball team because they knew I could drive that son of a bitch out there all the way to Denver. Jealous chipmunks, that's what they were. It's interesting for him to have these kind of semi-cliches the, the semi, uh, in here. You know, talking about this shitty Palm Springs Chamber of Commerce building and then talking about sake all of a sudden, but the specific things, the Greyhound bus, the baseball team picking him last, not having a pot to catch rain in instead of having a pot to piss in. I was gifted. Am gifted. Sometimes I looked at my hands and realized that I could have been a great pianist or something. But what have my hands done? Scratched my balls, written checks, tied shoes, pushed toilet levers. I have wasted my hands and my mind. I sat in the rain. The phone rang. I wiped it dry with a past due bill from the IRS picked it up. Nick Blaine, I said. Or was I Harry Martell? This is John Barton, came the voice. Yes, you've been recommending me. Thank you. I've been watching you. You've got talent. It's a little raw, but that's part of the charm. Great to hear. Business has been bad. I've been watching you. You'll make it. You just have to endure. 
Yeah? Now what can I do for you, Mr. Barton? I'm trying to locate the Red Sparrow. The Red Sparrow? What the hell is that? I'm not sure it exists. I just want to find it. I want you to locate it for me. Any leads for me to go on? No, but I'm sure the Red Sparrow is out there somewhere. The Sparrow doesn't have a name, does it? What do you mean? I mean a name like Henry or Abner or Celine. No, it's just the Red Sparrow and I know that you can find it. I've got faith in you. This is going to cost you, Mr. Barton. If you find the Red Sparrow, I will give you $100 a month for life. Well, isn't this a little call back to Black Sparrow and John Martin offering him $100 a month for the rest of Bukowski's life? Hmm. Listen, how about giving me all of it in one lump sum? No, Nick. You'd blow it at the track. Again, a call back to Bukowski. All right, Mr. Barton. Leave me your phone number and I'll work on it. Barton gave me the number and then said, I have real confidence in you, Belaine. Then he hung up. Well, business was picking up, but the ceiling was leaking worse than ever. I shook off some raindrops, had a hit of sake, rolled a cigarette, lit it, inhaled then choked out a hacking cough. I put on my brown derby, turned on the telephone message machine, walked slowly toward the door, opened it, and there stood McKelvey. He had a huge chest and it looked like he was wearing shoulder pads. Your lease is up, punk, he spit out. I want your dead ass out of here. Then I noticed his belly. It was like a soft mound of dead shit and I slammed my fist deep into it. His face doubled over into my oncoming knee. He fell, then rolled off me uh, one side. Ghastly sigh. I walked over, slipped out his wallet. Photos of children in pornographic poses. I thought about killing him, but I just took his gold Visa card, knocked him in the ass, and took the elevator down. I decided to walk to Red's. When I drove always, I seemed to get a parking ticket and lots charged more than I could afford. I walked toward Red's feeling a bit depressed. Man was born to die. What did it mean, hanging around and waiting? Waiting for the A train. Waiting for a pair of big breasts on some August night in a Vegas hotel room. Waiting... for the mouse to sing, waiting for the snake to grow wings, hanging around. That was a little Bukowski poetry there for you. Red was in. You're lucky, he said. You just missed that drunk Chanaski. He was in here bragging about his new blues postage scale. Well, 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 we have a little crossover here with Henry Chanaski from... The first five Bukowski novels. Never mind that, I said. You got a signed copy of Faulkner's As I Lay Dying? Of course. What's the toll? Twenty-eight grand. I'll think about it. Pardon me, said Red. Then he turned to a fellow thumbing through a first edition of You Can't Go Home Again. Please put that back, that book in the case and get the hell out of here. He was a delicate little fellow, all hunched over, dressed in what looked like a yellow rubber suit. He put the book back on the case and walked past us toward the street, his eyes clouding with moisture, and it stopped raining. His yellow rubber suit was useless. Red looked at me. Can you believe that some of them come in here eating ice cream cones? I believe worse than that. Then I noticed something else was in the bookstore. He was standing near the back. I thought I recognized him from his photos. Celine. Celine? I walked slowly down toward him. I got real close. So close that I could see what he was reading. Thomas Mann, The Magic Mountain. 
He saw me. This fellow had a problem, he said, holding up the book. I don't know why I'm giving this man a British accent, but I am. Deal with it. What's that? I asked. He considers boredom an art. He put the book back in the case and just stood there looking like Celine. I looked at him. This is amazing, I said. What is, he asked. I thought you were dead, I told him. He looked at me. I thought you were dead too, he said. Then we just stood there looking at each other. Then I heard Red. Hey, you, he yelled. Get the hell out of here. We were the only two in there. Which one has to get out? I asked. The one that looks like Celine. Get the hell out of here. But why? I asked. I can tell when they're not going to buy. Celine or whoever it was began to walk out. I followed him. He walked up toward the boulevard then stopped at the newsstand. The newsstand had been there as long as I could remember. I recalled standing there two or three decades ago with three prostitutes. I took them all to my place and one of them masturbated my dog. They thought it was funny. They were drunk and on pills. Then one of the prostitutes went to the bathroom where she fell over and banged her head against the edge of the toilet and bled all over the place. I kept wiping the stuff up with big wet towels. I put her to bed and sat with the others and finally they left. The one in bed stayed for four days and nights drinking all my beer and talking about her two children in East Kansas City. The fellow, was it Celine? standing at the newsstand reading a magazine. When I got closer, I noticed that it was the New Yorker. He put it back in the rack and looked at me. Only one problem here, he said. What's that? They just don't know how to write. None of them. Just then a cab came idling by. Hey, cabby! Celine yelled. The cab slowed and he leaped forward. The back door opened and he was inside. Hey, I yelled at him. I want to ask you something. The cab was brisking around Hollywood Boulevard. Celine leaned out, stuck out his arm, gave me the finger. Then he was gone. First cab I'd seen around these parts in decades. I mean an empty one, just lolling by. Well, the rain had stopped, but the pain was still there. Also... There was now a chill in the air and everything smelled like wet farts. I hunched over and moved towards Musso's. I had the gold visa card. I was alive, maybe. I even began to feel like Nicky Belaine. I hummed a little passage from Eric Coates. Hell was what you made it. This paragraph about the three prostitutes and one of them masturbating his dog and... uh, knocking her head and, you know, sleeping there for four days and nights. That's a very Bukowski-esque paragraph to the point that I'm thinking he's exaggerating his own style and one of his own stories. And it's as if he's making fun of himself or making fun of the people who try to write like him. And then that line, I had the gold visa card. I was alive. That's very Bukowski. And when he writes things like that, he packs so much power in those little phrases. And I remember when I first read Women, I was just knocked out because you could read these in so many different voices, but you just knew what he meant as Bukowski when he was narrating these stories. I gotta say, so far, I'm not hating this book at all. And yet, after I, you know, maybe it's that I'm reading it out loud, because reading things out loud is a much different experience. So maybe, even if I don't continue doing a series on this, I'm obviously going to finish it. I looked up Celine and the Webster. <laughs> In the Webster. Jesus. Is he talking about the dictionary or an encyclopedia set? 1891 to 1961. It was 1993. That answers our question from earlier. Saying he was alive. That would make him 102 years old. No wonder Lady Death was looking for him. And that fellow in the bookstore 
had looked between 40 and 50. So that was it. He wasn't Celine. Or maybe he'd found a method to beat the aging process. Maybe he's dead. Look at the movie stars. They took the skin from their ass and stuck it on their face. The skin on the ass was the last wrinkle. They all had walked around in their lady years with buttocks faces. Would Celine do that? Who would want to live to be 102? Nobody but a fool. Why would Celine wish to linger? The whole thing was crazy. Lady Death was crazy. I was crazy. <laughs> the pilots of airliners were crazy. Never look at the pilot. Just get on board and order drinks. What does that have to do with anything? I watched two flies fucking and then decided to call Lady Death. <laughs> God. I unzipped and waited for her voice. Oh my God. This is like Bukowski on steroids. <laughs> Hello, I heard her voice. What? Oh, it's you, Belaine. You getting anywhere on the case? Selene is dead. He was born in 1891. I'm aware of the statistics, Belaine. Listen, I knew that he was alive somewhere, and the guy in the bookstore could be him. Are you closing in on anything? I want this guy. I want him badly. Zip up. Huh? You fool. I said zip up. Uh, all right. I want positive proof whether this guy is or isn't. I've told you that I've got this crazy mind block on this matter. Barton recommended you. He said you were one of the best. Oh, yeah. I'm also working for Barton right now, as a matter of fact, trying to locate a red sparrow. What do you know about that? Listen, Belaine, you solve this Celine thing and I'll tell you where the red sparrow is. Oh, you will, lady? Oh, I'd do anything for you. Like what, Belaine? Well, I'd kill my pet cockroach for you. I'd belt whip my mother if she were here. I'd stop babbling. I'm beginning to think Barton may have given me a bum steer. Well, you better get going. Either solve the Celine thing, or I'm coming after you. Hey, wait a minute, lady. The phone was dead in my hand. I placed it back in its crady. cradle. She had no block of any sort in getting right to me. I had work to do. I looked around for a fly to kill. Then the door swung open, and there stood McKelvey and a big stack of subnormal manure. A big stack of subnormal manure? McKelvey looked at me, then nodded towards it. This is Tommy. Tommy looked at me with his tiny, dim eyes. Pleased to meet ya, he said. McGelvey grinned a horrible grin. Now, Belaine, Tommy's here just for one purpose, and that purpose is to slowly pound you to bloody hen shit. Right, Tommy? Uh-huh, said Tommy. He looked like he weighed about 380. Well, shave his fur and you might get him down to 365. I gave him a kindly smile. Now look, Tommy, you don't know me, do you? Uh-uh. Then why would you want to hurt me? Because Mr. McKelvey told me to. Tommy, if Mr. McKelvey told you to drink your pee-pee, would you do it? Hey, said McKelvey, stop mixing my boy up. Tommy, would you eat your mother's poo-poo just because Mr. McKelvey told you to eat your mother's poo-poo? Huh? Shut up, Belaine. I'll do the talking here. He turned to Tommy. Now I want you to rip this guy apart like an old newspaper. Just tear him to shreds and throw him the fucking winds. Got it? I got it, Mr. McKelvey. Good. Then what are you waiting for? The last rose of summer? Tommy stepped toward me. I slipped a luger out of my drawer, pointed it towards Tommy's gross immensity. 
Hold it, Thomas, or you'll be spouting more red than the jerseys of the Stanford football team. Hey, said McKelvey, where'd you get that damn thing? A dick without a gat is like a tomcat without a rubber. Or something like that. Or like a clock without hands. Blaine, said McKelvey, you talk goofy. I've been told. Now tell your boy to back off or I'll put so much daylight through him that you'll be able to toss a grapefruit through. Tommy, said McKelvey, come on back over here. Stand in front of me. (laughs) They stood there like that. I had to figure out what to do with them. It wasn't easy. I'd never won a scholarship to Oxford. I'd slept through biology and I was weak in math, but I managed to stay alive up until now. Maybe. Anyhow, I momentarily held some kind of ace and some kind of a stacked deck. Again, with the slight cliches. I had to make a move. Now or never. That is a cliche. September was coming. The crows were in council. The sun was bleeding. I don't know what any of this means, people. Maybe you do. I don't. It's a weird poetics from Bukowski. All right, Tommy, I said. Down on your hands and knees. Now. He looked at me like he didn't hear so good. I gave him a wan smile and clicked the safety catch off the Luger. Tommy was dumb, but not totally. He dropped to his hands and knees, shaking the whole sixth floor like a 5.9 earthquake. I'm going to sneeze. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Oh, I hit my head this morning getting out of the refrigerator like a dumbass. And uh, I think the residual pain is sticking with me. My fake dolly fell to the floor, the one with the melted watch. Tommy clumped like the Grand Canyon and looked at me. Now, Tommy, I said, you're going to be the elephant. And Mr. McKelvey is going to be the elephant boy. Got it? Huh? asked Tommy. I looked over at McKelvey. Go on, get on, mount. Blaine, are you nuts? Who knows? Insanity is comparative. Who sets the norm? I don't know, said McKelvey. Just get on. All right, all right. But I never had trouble like this before when Elise ran out. Get on, asshole. McKelvey climbed onto Tommy's back. He had real trouble getting his legs over the sides. Almost split his butt. Good, I said. Now, Tommy, you're the elephant, and you're going to carry McKelvey on your back down the hall and into the elevator. Begin now. Tommy began crawling across the floor of the office. Blaine, said McKelvey, I'll get you for this. I swear by my mother's pubic hairs. Bukowski was really mixing metaphors here. Mess with me again, McKelvey, and I'll ram your cock down a garbage disposal. I'd love to write that line. I opened the door and Tommy crawled out with the elephant boy. He crawled on down the hall and as I slipped the Luger back into my coat pocket, I felt something in there. A crumpled up piece of paper. I took it out. It was my examination paper for the written test to renew my driver's license. It was full of red marks. I had failed. (laughs) What? This is so random. I tossed the paper over my shoulder and followed my friends. We reached the elevator and I pressed the button. I stood there humming a bit from Carmen. Then out of nowhere, I remembered long ago reading about how they found Jimmy Fox dead in the Skid Row motel room. All those home runs. Dead with the roaches. The elevator came up. The door opened and I gave Tommy a boot in the ass. He crawled in, bearing McKelvey. There were three people in there, standing, reading their newspapers. They kept reading. The elevator went down. I took the stairway. I was 30 pounds overweight and I needed it. Jesus, can I relate to that? I counted 176 steps, then I was on the first floor. I stopped at the cigar stand, bought a cigar in the daily racing form. I heard the elevator coming. (laughs) 
Jesus. Outside, I moved toward the smog resolutely. My eyes were blue and my shoes were old and nobody loved me. <laughs> but I had things to do. I was Nikki Mullane, private detective. <laughs> this book is fucking funny, man. We've gotten about, you know, 20 pages into this thing, so... I think we're going to call it for this episode and continue into the next episode. And if you enjoyed this as much as I did, I hope to see you next week on Demise of the Podcast. I'm not done yet. Don't turn off your fucking radio. Don't touch that dial. There's a Bukowski cliche for you. You gotta stop arguing with the boomers about student debt. Because for one thing, they're all dying off. Okay? They say, if you took the loan, you pay it back. Well, just accept that they're ignorant and they don't know any better. And just because they make statements like that doesn't mean that they're to blame for what's going on with the Supreme Court. Okay? If I'm not mistaken, Trump is mostly to blame for what's going on with the Supreme Court, seeing as he had three justices appointed and that fucker, Clarence Thomas, that piece of shit, God. And I love how all this news about his corruption is coming out. And we're, you know, nothing's being really done about it. I mean, I'm sure that, the, you know, people like AOC are trying to get him taken out of the Supreme Court or whatever. But here's the thing. If you attack Clarence Thomas... That's going to start a domino effect. And it would be a good domino effect, but it might lead back to the wrong people who don't want to be found. Okay, now we all know that people like Th Clarence Thomas exist in every branch of government. It's just the reality of our government, especially within the last two centuries. All we can really do in our government is vote. People talk about democracy dying and all this shit. Listen, this is the way it's always been. Okay, people elect politicians like Republicans and often Democrats just because they say they're going to do one thing doesn't mean they'll do it. And then you're not going to be able to stop them from teaming up together and doing things against your better interest. And the Republicans have been doing that for a long time. As far as I'm concerned, our voice in government and how it's ran stops with the vote. Because if this were a democracy, and it's not, it's a democratic republic. Democratic is modifying republic. We're mainly a republic full of elected officials. The thing is, is that you can protest, you can riot, you can do things like January 6th, which I don't recommend doing. What is that going to accomplish? Because mainly what it does is create awareness for your cause, uh, of course. But, I mean, you have something like the insurrection of January 6th. The only thing that was really accomplished with that is that we found out that there are a lot of fucking Republican extremists out there, which we already knew. But it gave Republicans on Facebook uh, an excuse to say, that wasn't us, that was liberals trying to make us look bad. You're wasting your breath participating in this political theater on social media. You really are. Because this is, it's just like what Oscar in the office says. In debates, the only thing that happens is that people get further in, entrenched in their beliefs. We've got a big mess to, to, to clean up after the boomers and other older generations. And it can't, it can't be solved in one year. It's not going to be solved in four years. we got to understand is that Donald Trump alone did a lot of damage in four years. Damage to our country, its infrastructure, and politically, that's like weight gain. You know, you can, you can gain weight pretty fast. It's getting it off that's difficult. And that's what it's going to be like. I haven't been writing anything for a good minute, and I still have ideas stewing in my head for possible projects, but I'm not sure when the right time will be to execute them. I've been playing guitar mostly unplugged lately. I just have my Ibanez 
sitting in the living room and I've been running scales and playing a few songs here and there, trying to think of songs that I want to learn how to play on the guitar because that's something that I've kind of neglected since, I don't know, forever. You know, I've been playing guitar since 2004. I know a lot of songs, but the idea is that you want to keep learning them. The only reason why I play that Ibanez here lately is because it's semi-hollow and I can hear it better unplugged. Otherwise, I don't really care for hollow bodies and semi-hollow bodies. Every time I get one, I end up wanting to get rid of it. That's the thing. I have mostly hollow, I mean, uh, whoa, uh, mostly solid body guitars. For some reason, I have three acoustic guitars that I mostly don't play. But I'm starting to get that craving to create again. It's coming. Hold on, unless I die beforehand. Lately, I've been feeling as if I'm in death's grips lately for some reason. Part of it's anxiety. But my anxiety's gotten better, ironically, because I stopped taking Flonase. I've been taking B12 to help with any damage that was caused by prolonged use of omeprazole. I've been taking some magnesium before bed here and there. So I've been getting better about bloating, partially thanks to taking probiotics again. But just a lot of different stuff going on with me. And, you know, I'm in my 30s, so everything's falling apart. You're probably done hearing me ramble. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy weekend, happy reading, happy life, happy wife. Bye. Bye.